please turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. We finished the Old Testament. Well, we didn't finish it. We finished preaching through the Old Testament, uh, at least parts of it, um, last week with Malachi. And uh, now we are in the book of Matthew. And I hope that uh, it will be a blessing to you in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, the book of Matthew, uh, is, of course, as you see in the New Testament, the very first book in the New Testament. And uh, it is not the first book, chronologically speaking. Uh, I do believe it's the first book, first gospel. Um, but the book of James, or maybe Galatians, I believe James, is probably uh, is considered to be the first book chronologically written. Uh, but Matthew is the first and fullest record of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the life and, and, and purpose of His ministry. Uh, and his prominence in the, as the first book is, is tested throughout, uh, throughout history. In the early church, they used to pass copies of the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke for a long time because John was written you know, some 50 years later. Um, but they would pass those three around, and Matthew was always, always the first one. That, that's what history tells us anyway. Um, so it's validated by its prominence there. Uh, some, again, say Mark was written sooner, but I don't think there's any compelling reason to remove Matthew. Uh, from his prominence as the first book in the New Testament because it pairs very well with the Old Testament. It's a good transitional book into the New Testament. Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews. He presented Jesus as a Messiah, as that fulfilled prophecy of the the coming Messiah, a Jewish Messiah. And uh, it's also unique in that the person Matthew, of course, was a Jew, but he is one who worked for the occupying Roman government. Um, some would say he was even a traitor because he was a, a tax collector from his own people to the occupying Roman, uh, uh, Roman Empire. So it's interesting that God would use this man. It just goes to show that God can save anybody. God can use anybody. Not that publicans are the worst or, polit- or even tax collectors. We still love them, of course, most of the time. Right? <laughs> but it's clear that Jesus called this first century, I would say, highly intelligent and first century tech-savvy Jew to follow him, just like he called the rough and rowdy fishermen, like Peter, James, and John, and so forth. So God calls um, who he wills. And he, Matthew, was led of the Spirit to record the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was also record, uh, called to record certain sermons. And one of those sermons was right here, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Probably uh, some would say the greatest sermon ever written uh, here in the, in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5. Now, the other Gospels allude to it, but this is the fullest account here. So he recorded this great sermon on the Mount. And sermons from this sermon, like today and other sermons, um, that we normally hear are from the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses there. We see, blessed are the poor, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are they that meek. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. There's great messages, there's great truths there. I've preached from there before. Um, but this is not what caught my attention as I was trying to follow the Lord and, and, and looking for something, searching for the passage to preach. I am not a topical passage uh, preacher. I don't look for topics to preach from. I look for passages to preach from. And as the Lord leads uh, through those, I even, you know, just uh, give you an idea how I get to these. Uh, way back before this year started, I prayed for what would God have us for a reading, what, what, what books of the Bible through the whole year. And that's how He gave us the whole Bible. And as we're going through this, Matthew's the next. That don't necessarily mean I have to read in Matthew. I'm looking for something in the New Testament towards the beginning of the New Testament. And uh, so I pray and ask God to lead me to a passage. Because in that passage, 
we're going to find the topics that God wants us to, to hear from. And uh, so the Beatitudes is not what caught my eye reading through this and not what pricked my heart. It's the very last verse of this chapter. Look at verse number 48 of Matthew chapter 5. The Bible says, Jesus says at this sermon, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven, which is perfect. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. So from this one verse we are clearly, very clearly commanded to be perfect, to live perfect, to live perfect in an imperfect world. That's, that's what Jesus is telling us to do here. So we are to, if I can put it in a different way and, and do a title here, we are to live beyond everything that's here, including self, circumstances, all the things that come into our life. We are to live beyond self to live beyond ourselves with the idea that we are to serve Him in doing so. We are to be perfect. That's a tall order, but that's the command. Be perfect. And with that said, I asked, in honor of the reading of the Word of God, I ask you to please stand as we read. I want to begin right there in verse number 38. And if you can look on the, on the slide here or look in your own copy of the Word of God, but look right there at Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38, the Bible says, Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this text, and we thank you for your words Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for, for becoming one of us, for coming down in this world, not just paying our sin debt, not just being quiet and going to the cross, but teaching us, teaching us how to live in that new life that you provided us. Lord, help us to read through these texts here and these just handful of verses here that, that lead up to your last statement in this chapter that says, be perfect. Help us to lead up, live up to this, Lord. Help us to, to follow your example. Help us to follow your teachings. Help us to be people that follow you. Lord, and we thank you in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please, please be seated. So this morning, of course, we're going to talk about living, living beyond, living beyond. Now, along with the initial recipients of this first sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, especially this last verse here, where Jesus says, be perfect. So along with those who first heard that, we most certainly know 
that we are not perfect. We're just not. And when Jesus preached this, He knew that they were not perfect. And He knows today that we are not perfect, and yet He still gives this command, be perfect. Be perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now, to be clear, the word perfect in our Bible doesn't carry with it the same idea that we use it today. Today we have this understanding that when we say something that's perfect, it's flawless and without error. But in the Bible, the word perfect focuses more on being complete. Now, the Bible does tell us to be angry and sin not and some other things right here, but in context, and the word perfect means to be complete. And throughout this Sermon on the Mount, we realize that this idea of being complete, this idea of being perfect, is really a reference to being morally complete or ethically complete, and on and on down, those, down that kind of way of thinking. Because the more we reach the full maturity of morality or ethical values, or however you want to put that, the closer we are going to be to our own definition of perfect and being without flaw. It is true, that, however, that as Christians, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We will be perfect. We will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. But it is also true that we are not there yet, right? I mean, I'm not the only one. I know this. And while it is God who conforms us into the image of His Son, there are some responsibilities that we have to do. We don't just sit back on our, on our couch and just wait, okay, Lord, conform me. It doesn't work that way. God expects something of us. Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable perfect will of God. So just from those two passages, we learn that God ultimately does the transforming on a willing vessel, I might add, but we have a command to not conform to this world. But we, it's very clear that, that we have a command to conform, just not to this world. And if that's true, then it's clear that we are to conform to Jesus Christ, the, what, what we, or we, whom we are predestined to be like. So if I can put that in a reference here in, in Matthew chapter 5, the latter part of Matthew chapter 5, specifically verse 48, we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are to be ethically and morally and spiritually like God. We are to be ethically, morally, and spiritually like Jesus Christ. That is the command. Be perfect, morally, spiritually, and so forth. In the words of Jesus, again, we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. We are to be perfect, complete, in an incomplete world, in an imperfect world. We are to live beyond this world, transcended. Now, as we look at part of this Sermon on the Mount, we're only going to pull out a handful of truths this morning. We're going to, this is actually going to be a very, in my mind, a very practical message based on some biblical principles, what, how we should live. Now, it goes with the idea that we, or it goes with the understanding or that we should already be in Christ. The church is, the reason we come together is to worship Jesus Christ. This is not for unbelievers. Now, unbelievers are welcome, of course, but the idea of a church, the definition of a church, are those who have committed themselves to Jesus Christ, accepted the payment He's made for him or for them on the cross. So we come together to worship. That's what we're here for this morning. Now, we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to share that in the case there might be some here that's lost. 
But we as believers come here to worship Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's why we're here. So this is going to be a practical message. And even though we'll only pull out a handful of truths, even those handful, even those, those four truths we'll look at this morning, they're unreachable. We can't do them. So you might ask, why am I going to preach about them? Because there is a way we can. But it's not through strength, it's through surrender. So again, we're going to look at four commands, or four imperatives, if you will, from Jesus that are connected to this verse here in, in chapter 5, verse 48. They're connected to living beyond self, living beyond the circumstances, living beyond the news, social media, living beyond all of those things. We are to be perfect. Those things are not to affect us. And again, the perfect fulfillment of these commands, it is flat out impossible without Jesus Christ. It cannot happen. Because living this way requires a source that's beyond us. If we're going to live beyond us, we need a source that's beyond us. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the only way this is possible is to have a source from the Father within us to give us that power to do so. And a surrender to that source. And we know that source as the Son, the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Writing about living by the source, if you will, or living by the Spirit, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. That means if you have Christ, the Holy Spirit of God living within you, you have been enabled to live, to actually be perfect, to live beyond self. As sons of God... We are to live perfectly. Further down in that same chapter, in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, Paul wrote this, If ye live after the flesh, this is written to believers, mind you, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, do kill, to put the death, the deeds of the body, in other words, our actions are submitted to Him, if we do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And as sons of God, which is clearly implied here in verse 48, our Father, which is in heaven, be perfect as our Father, your Father, we are to be led of the Spirit as His children. We are to live right. That's no surprise to anybody that's been a Christian for a while. We should know that we are to live right. There's things we should do. There's things that we shouldn't do. We are to live beyond. But even in that concept of do and don't, Jesus is teaching, rise even above that into the matters of the heart. And we'll talk about some of these things here because all of it is a matter of the heart. It's been said many, many times, every matter is a matter of the heart. Whether we have struggling with this or struggling with that, it's all a matter of the heart. And in, these, in this text here, I'm going to pull out, the Lord give me peace and leadership about pulling out four of at least 15 imperatives in this short text that we read um, out of chapter 5. Um, so just four practical things this morning, four rules that we as born-again Christians are to live by. Notice first, again, verse number 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. So both verses 39 and 40 deal with how we as Christians are to respond to insults, 
how we are to respond to evil personally against us. Now, the law that he, that he quotes, Jesus quotes there in verse 38, is from Exodus 21, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and so forth. But those, those laws there in Exodus 21 were given to the judges. In other words, if, if, if Shannon offended me or I offended Shannon, I, I poked his eye out or something like that, we are to go to the judges, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, in context, I don't necessarily mean the judges are going to poke my eye out, but I'm going to pay an equivalent to what we think it's worth. Five bucks? Ten bucks? I don't know. <laughs> so an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was something that's, that was moderated under government. Under government. So it's not like... If Shannon pokes my eye, I go poke his eye out. That's not what this Bible is talking about, even in the Old Testament. So the first law from Exodus 21 was under the authority of the judges. In other words, laws were in place to keep things civil. The judges were to ensure proper judgment in this case in accordance with the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Jesus is not, no surprise, not undermining the concept of government. He ordained government, but rather He is teaching what we as individuals, not as the government responds, but how we as Christians are to respond. How do I respond when Shannon pokes me in the eye? Please don't put me in the eye later. We're not going to give a demonstration. So, so we should respond, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. As a matter of fact, this whole chapter, the whole sermon, is a practical sermon on how people who follow Jesus Christ are to respond Christ-like. And I think if we could sum up these two verses, verses um, 30, 39 and 40 together, I think in my mind that we can come to this conclusion, that we are to grant others dignity, and I can add this no matter what. Slap in the face, poke in the eye, Lawsuits, it don't matter. That person is created in the image of God, and we are to treat him as such, her, he or she. So Jesus gives us an example here of a man being struck right on the cheek. Now I realize that there have been many words written explaining away what God's talking about here. Oh, he's just talking about this, he's talking about this, trying to um, justify my ability to hit back. But let's look at what the Lord says here. So I realized those things have been written. And quite honestly, as a man, as a former soldier who's, who's been to combat, I know all about the normal mindset that accompanies masculinity. And, and that if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? That's just what we do. Male or female, we're expected to stand up for ourselves. But, you know, in the entire life of Christ, he never raised his hand to hit another person. I've had a one, one uh, I watched a dialogue between two. Well, if you live like that, people are going to walk all over you. They walked all over our Savior. They walked all over Him. And He never raised His hand to hit another person. In fact, quite the opposite was true in that He willingly laid down His life for my sin and for yours. He did not resist the evil of the cross. He took it. Now, please don't misunderstand. I do not believe Jesus is teaching pacifism here. Because as Solomon wrote, there is a time of war, and there is a time for peace. In Luke 22, verse 30, 38, we even read that Jesus was okay with some of the apostles being armed. Who'd have thought? And Paul refers to government in Romans 13. Government employed sword bearers as ministers of God. So we need Christians to be police officers, to be soldiers. We need people to serve. But I believe this verse is not talking about those things. I believe this verse has much to do with us personally personal conflicts. It has much to do with our dignity and the other person's dignity. 
So this is not a fight for one's life Jesus is talking about. This is not a country invading another country. This is being slapped in the face. This is being sued for something petty. And when these things happen to us, we are not to respond in kind. It's not slap for slap, insult for insult, lawsuit for lawsuit. We are to respond in love like Christ. Simply put, we are to grant others dignity even at the loss of ours even at the loss of our dignity. And many times, if not all the time, this is not sourced in us, but in a surrender to the Spirit within. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So when we are insulted, when we are offended, when we are sued, or even when someone slaps us right in the face, we are to remember this passage. Paul elaborated even more in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He said, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Remember, we are dead in Christ. We are dead in Christ. Now, I understand there's some things that are different in this world, but if we are dead in Christ, you slap a dead man, there's no response. We are dead in Christ. And next we read as we go on, Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. So Jesus is saying that we are to turn the other cheek. We are not to go to lawsuits between believers and all those kinds of things here and taught in other places as well. We are to grant others dignity. And very quickly, a very short point here, we are to go the distance, very literally right out of the text right there. Look at verse 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him two miles. Go with him two miles. This is contrary, I think, to a lot of the way we live today. You know, by studying the culture in which this was written, we learned that it was common for a Roman dispatch or a mailman, however you want to look at that, he would compel a Roman citizen to accompany them for a, for a trek or so. So in other words, he's, he's gone from point A to point B, and he, and he sees a house, and this guy has a horse or, or maybe a Volkswagen bus, whatever. You know, he comes up to him, and he says, hey, I need a ride to, you know, to point B. And that guy has to stop everything that he's doing and ride with this, this Roman uh, diplomat. Included in the request was even expected maybe some, unpro- uh, some meals and, and prov- provisions for the transport and all those things. Even Maybe even carrying the dispatch the Roman soldier would have had or the Roman diplomat would have had. Now you can, you can picture the inconvenience there. There you are. And you're getting up in the morning, maybe it's a late morning, uh, you're about to do your own travels, whether it's to the store to get a cup of hot chocolate or something, I don't know. I don't know if they had those things then, but whatever it is. You're about to do all your things that day, and, this, and you see the Roman dispatch show up at your driveway. And then you are compelled to drop whatever you're doing, cancel all your plans, and go with this stranger for a mile. You've never met in your life. Carry his bags, do all these things, and then you go to the next house. And when you get to that next house, you hand off these imposed duties of a subordinate chaperone, if you will, to the next poor guy. I mean, today, maybe we'd call him, hey, the guy's coming, go hide yourself. But they didn't have, they didn't have those things. So you just show up at this guy's house. Sorry, dude, this guy's here. You want to take him the rest of the way? And as you walk back to your house, you no doubt, man, my whole day's shy. You complain the whole way back to your house, probably. I know I would. It's terribly, terribly inconvenient. And this entire ordeal would have been terribly, again, inconvenient and something that you would avoid at all costs. 
And maybe even that morning, this happened. And then you go to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, if he compels you to go one mile, go two miles. What? I just went one mile, and I complained all about it. Actually, you went two miles because you had to go back, whatever. Um, But I think the point is clear here. And it's even more clear in in Luke chapter 6, verse 30. The Bible says, And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. We know that, right? The golden rule, we probably learned that when we were wee high. So again, I think the point is clear, and that we are to help people even when it's inconvenient. Even when it's inconvenient. That's the mark of a Christian who's submitted to God, even when it's inconvenient. And if we look in this text as ourselves, many times we're looking at the one that's doing the walking, doing the blessing, doing the giving, but look at the other side of that circumstance, that equation, if you will. If we look at ourselves as the one doing the compelling, in verse 41, if a man um, whosoever shall compel thee, maybe you're the one compelling somebody to go a mile with you. If we look at ourselves as that or as the one in need, we could agree that we would all greatly appreciate someone going twice the distance with us. And if that is what we would want someone to do for us, then very clearly, based on Luke 6.30, it's what we should do for others, even when it's inconvenient. See, Jesus' teaching is radical to all of what we are today. It's radical to self, situation, circumstance, culture. It is the way of God. And I realize that there are priorities in this life, and priorities are a priority for a reason. I know that we can't just stop everything all the time. I realize that. But living a life beyond self and circumstance is truly Christ-like. For He, most definitely, Jesus Christ, went went the distance. He went the distance. Praise God, He went all the way. Reading on in these few verses here from our Savior, we also learn that living beyond self did not stop with turning the other cheek. It didn't stop with going the extra mile. But notice in verse 42, it gets... It almost gets a little personal. Not not that a slap in the face is not personal, but now it gets into our wallet. And that's maybe even more personal than being slapped in the face. Look at verse 42. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou away not thou away. Very clearly in the text we see that we are to give without distinction. Whoever asks, maybe you can only use that for the distinction, but other than that, there's none. You know, giving is a characteristic of a Christian. Giving is a characteristic of one who has eternal life. I mean, knowing that you have eternal life, I think puts a unique perspective on giving in this life. In other words, the things that we acquire in this life and the things that we give away in this life, they truly don't matter. But the way in which we give those things will. That will matter forever. Now, truth be told here, the Bible is not against saving money if you're blessed and able to do so. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man that leaveth an inheritance to his ch- a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. It's wise to do this. And in 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's actually required of us to be good stewards. It's required of us to be good stewards. It's required that a man be found faithful. We're we're to be faithful over everything that we have. But the Bible also states in Acts 20.35 that it's more blessed to give 
than to receive. I heard a pastor say this one time, it's more blessed to give than to receive because you actually have it to be able to give it. And I'm, I think you all would agree with me, it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. So yes, we are to be good stewards of what God has given us in all things, but I will also want to say this, rarely is it wrong to give. Rarely is it wrong to give. Notice this verse again, give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Now again, let's look at the other side of this. Think about who the him might be in the cultural context. Who the him might be. Could it be a friend who just needs some funds? Could it be a coworker who forgot his or her wallet when you're meeting for lunch, maybe? Could it be a distant relative who lost a loved one? In the cultural context here, could it be a beggar or a homeless man near the temple? Or could it be the mugged traveler that the Levite and the priest walked by where the Samaritan stopped? I believe the text and the cultural context of this passage allows for all of these circumstances and more. And Jesus says, give to him that asketh thee. Again, giving is Christ-like. Giving is God-like. I've heard it said before, there's, there's many scenarios or many phrases you can put this in, but you're never more like God when you're giving. For God so loved that he gave. You know, may it never be said of us here today that we are a stingy church. May it never be said that we are a greedy church. May we be a giving people, both collectively as a church. May we be a giving people to this community and around the world. And may we be a giving people individually. I think it's the mark of true Christianity to be a giver. And the New Testament teaches that we are to give to those who ask of us, right here out of the text, red and white. <laughs> and I understand that there are, there are some times when it's unwise. I understand that. It's unwise to give to a certain person, like maybe an alcoholic holding an empty bottle of whiskey. We certainly don't want to give him five bucks. I understand that. It's probably not wise to provide for his next bottle. But if feasibly safe, you could buy him a meal and maybe spend some time with him. Take him down to Waffle House or something. I don't know. Not that we have a Waffle House. Don't go there. They're nasty. My wife don't, my wife don't let me go there anymore. My sister-in-law calls him the Awful House. Um, but anyway. <laughs> but in those situations, the Holy Spirit is our great discerner. The Holy Spirit is our great discerner. But I truly believe that the Lord's point here is that we as followers are to be givers. We're to be givers. You know, there will never be a shortage of reasons not to give. You can always come up with a reason not to give. Always. And, and very easily. Ah, oh, no, he's probably going to do this with her. She's probably, no, nope, I'm not giving. On and on. We can, we can come up with all kinds of things. But there's never, rarely are you wrong to give. Rarely are you wrong to give. And before we move on from giving, I'd like to give some practical guidance, even some more practical guidance, and maybe even a personal example from my own life and what has been taught to me by men, and I believe confirmed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says this, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of a necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So if you come to this church, and I don't... I don't do this very often, and I'm preaching about money. Never come across that I'm begging or asking or of a necessity that you have to give or you're not a good Christian and you don't do this grudgingly or anything. That's not what the Bible talks about here. It says God loves a cheerful giver. If you have to give, even now if you're giving, and it's like, oh, I can't let it go, then keep it. 
because God don't want it. And God can get this ministry going however He wants to do it going. He doesn't need. Giving is not for Him, it's for us. Remember, it's blessed to give than to receive. So again, by this verse we see here, I'm going to read it again. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, that's individual priesthood of the believer here, so let him give, not grudgingly or of a necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So we don't give by obligation. But this is what I've come to. I've come to the conclusion that if Abraham gave 10% of what he had before the cross, I can surely give 10% on this side of the cross. And for me, this is the basic giving template. And as far as local ministries goes, like Homefoss Baptist Church and Onspot Baptist Church and so forth, that type of giving is what gives, keeps us afloat financially, keeps the lights on, oil in the tank, all those kinds of things. That's what we call our general fund here. And then as we, in the New Testament, we see that churches gave beyond themselves the churches gave beyond themselves. For the furtherance of the gospel, we see it in Acts chapter 13. We see it at the, the end of, of, of 2 Corinthians. We see it in many places where churches are giving beyond themselves to help other ministries. For us, this is what we call our missions account. And I told you I'd mention this in, in the introduction here, but as a church, we, we send already, right now, we send about $2,000 a month to missionaries around the world to about 18 different ministries around the world, from here in Germany, as far away as South Africa, and even into Central America. We support about 18 different ministries. And as for me, because I cannot be in those places, I personally choose, and I believe the Lord has led me, to give monthly to the missions above my 10%. That's what I feel the Lord has given, led me to do. And I also believe this is what Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 which is our, if you remember the given beyond slide, it says, As ye abound in everything, see that ye abound in this grace also. Now in context there, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's bragging on a church who is in poverty, deep poverty, the Bible says, and they gave beyond themselves to help another church in deep poverty. And giving that example of giving, Paul says, As ye abound in everything, and then he says, like preaching and like, like faith and like, like singing and all those other things, see that ye abound in this grace also, the grace of giving. Abounding in the grace of giving beyond self and in a way that enables the local church to support ministries beyond itself. That's the Bible way. And speaking, of, again, of giving beyond, I truly want our church to be a blessing this Christmas by sending each missionary an extra $100. Now, this is not a plea. This is not a beg. This is an ask. And some have already given specifically to reach our goal. Um, so we have $1,700 to go. Some have given a couple hundred dollars. So as the Lord leads, and only as the Lord leads, give. Only as the Lord leads. And back in the text here, at any rate, we see that our Savior truly teaches that we are to be a giving people. This is not my words. These are His words. And as Paul wrote again, not grudgingly or of a necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And continuing on in this text, we see from the text here that our last imperative from Jesus is found in verses 43 through 47. Look at verse 43 again. Ye have heard that it hath been said... Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? 
do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren, only what do... Uh, only what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans or, or the unbelievers and the hypocrites, do not they do the same thing? So while there is much here in these verses, I'd like to sum up with one point based on the phrase found in verse 47 where it says, If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? So with that point, and it starts with a G, so I'm happy about that. So we are to greet without discrimination. We are to greet others without discrimination. On and on and on here, we can see in this verse, over and over, we are to love our enemies, do good, um, do, do, do good to those who persecute you. And we actually get seven imperatives from here, seven things from these few passages that God tells us to do. Look at this. Now, we are to love our enemies. We are to bless those that curse us. We are to do good to them that hate us. We are to pray for them who despitefully use us. We are to pray for them uh, who, uh, who persecute us. We are not to just love those who love us, and we are not just to greet those who greet you. Or greet us. This is the mind of a Christian. And quite honestly, every one of these things is contrary to the norms of culture. Every one of them. Every one of them. You know, if you've ever studied the, the, the different types of love in the Greek language, you know, there's three types, there's four in the Greek, three are used in the Bible. This is not phileo. This is not a brotherly love. This is agape love. This is agape love. That's the love that God gives to us, the unilateral love, the one that doesn't expect a return. Agape love. This is Christ-like love. It's not dependent on all, at all, on the one receiving it. It's the love that we receive from God. And he says, love your enemies. That's not normal for us, is it? Love your enemies. Romans 5.8 says that God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And many other verses posit us as being enemies of Christ. And then He reconciled us. Christ loved us when we were enemies. It's, it's kind of a, a different angle there. If we look at it, you know, Christ loved us first and therefore we find salvation in that love for us. And if that works for our salvation, how could there ever be any reconciliation if we don't first love our enemies? They will always be our enemies if we don't love them. Always. But like Christ, if He didn't love us, we would still be His enemies. It starts with love. God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So an easy takeaway from this passage in Matthew chapter 5 is that while some may be our enemies, we are to love them. And while some may hate us, we are to love them. And while some may use us, ridicule us, make fun of us, even persecute us, we are to pray for them. Pray for them. I had a, a preacher friend just told me there was, there was potential animosity. Somebody did something that, that offended him. And uh, he went and did his part, made it right and all those things. And on the way to that meeting, he, outside of that, that location there, he says, Lord, every time I go past this building, I want you to, I want you to help me pray for that man. Because what he, he's forgiven for what he's done, but what he's did is something that endures. It's always something that's impacting um, him and his ministry. And when he said that, he goes, the only unfortunate thing about me praying that is that God reminds me of it every time I drive by that place. And as angry as I want to be, I have to stop and I pull over. I ask for the Lord's forgiveness and I pray for that man in that building. Pray for those who make fun of you. 
Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who, who, who ridicule you. Pray for those who hate you just because you're a believer. Pray for them. Don't respond in kind. If they give you the proverbial slap, don't respond. Love them. Love is the answer. And while others may be strangers here in the text, we are to greet them. I think Jesus' point is crystal clear. Even unbelievers greet their friends. Unbelievers love their families. Unbelievers do nice things for people they know. And while it's true that some unbelievers truly rise above that stereotype, if you will, it should be the mark of every Christian. It should be the norm, not the anomaly, that we are to be givers and greeters of this, of this kind of thing. We are to love those who hate, us, who, hate, who hate us. Listen, our communities and our countries will never see revival We will not see the world turned upside down for Christ if Christians don't live like Christ. And this is what Christians do. I get it. Every every one of these things require an exorbitant amount of faith. They do. This kind of living requires an energy that's beyond us. But that's the whole point. That's the whole point is to let go of self and let God live through us. If we are to live beyond self and circumstance, we are to be Perfect. If we're to be perfect as our Father in heaven, we need a source that's beyond us. We need that source from the Father. And if I can be even clearer here, we don't just need the words of Christ preached to us, although that's important. We need Christ Himself in us. We need Jesus in us. We need to receive Him as our personal Savior. There's two applications here. If you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, today is that day. All of us will stand before a holy God. If you could stand there and say, I've never sinned, then have at it. But none of us are going to be able to do that. Accept the payment of a cross today. The other application is as Christians, if we're not surrendered completely to God, I know that's, again, something that's beyond us, we need to do so. We need to be all out. You know, it's easier to give my time when I believe that God owns my time. It's easier to lend a drill when I believe that God owns that drill. It's easier to do all of these things and give away everything that you have if you first believe that God owns it. That's actually the first principle of giving, knowing that God owns it all, knowing that God owns it all. We are to be perfect in an imperfect world, and that requires granting others dignity, going the distance, giving without distinction, and greeting others, telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of who they are, what they look like, what they come from, what their language is, what they smell like. It doesn't matter at all. Greet them all the same. Love them. Love them. Being perfect. Be perfect in an imperfect world. And I'll close with this last verse. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let us go to the Lord in prayer, to our Father in prayer.